Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Biography, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Mark Klobus, your host for the channel. Today, I'm speaking with Teresa Kaminsky, author of the book, Dr. Mary Walker's Civil War, One Woman's Journey to the Medal of Honor and the Fight for Civil Rights. Mary, welcome to New Books Network. Hi, Mark. How are you doing? I'm doing well today. Uh, Thank you for being on our podcast. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling our listeners something about yourself. Sure. Um... I've recent. I, I know everybody's been um, transitioning into different work because of um, virus-related issues. My most recent transition has had to do with retirement. I was a history professor for about 25 years, and my specialty was American women's history. So this book on Mary Walker really fits into kind of um, my lifelong career. What was it that led you to Mary Walker as a subject? Well, actually, I can't take credit for choosing her as a subject. This is one of those kind of odd, funny publishing stories. I had just signed a contract with Lions Press to write a biography of Dale Evans, who um, in the mid-20th century was probably one of the most well-known, beloved entertainers in the United States. And um, that project I'd been working on and off for about 10 years. And once I retired, I finally thought it was time to finish it up. And my editor at Lyons had a conversation with another editor at the press who was Uh, who had gotten interested in Medal of Honor winners. And she was surprised to find that there was only one woman who has ever been awarded the Medal of Honor. And she thought that um, it was time for a new biography. And she was kind of speculating about who would be a good person to write that. And um, my editor said, well, I think I know who you should get in touch with. So that's how I came into the project. And of course, I was absolutely thrilled with the opportunity to write about Mary Walker. I had known about her, her basic activities from all of my years of teaching, but I honestly had never thought about her for a full length biography. She really did lead a fascinating life, and your book does a wonderful job of illuminating it. And she was not just a person whose activities during the Civil War earned her, you know, the nation's highest honor. She also lived this very interesting life before where she becomes a doctor, which was such a rare thing at that time. And then she goes on to this very long life as an activist, and and, uh, even as activists go, oftentimes a very controversial one. That's right. And a lot of who she was as a person does get traced back to her childhood. Her parents were, I think, what would have been known in the decades prior to the Civil War as free thinkers. And they 
they were living in sort of upstate middle New York. And this was an area that was also referred to sometimes as the burnt over district because of the religious revivals that moved through that area. Um, the Walker family was not particularly religious in that sense. Their free thinking did apply to religion. Mary Walker's parents expected their children to approach religion intellectually rather than emotionally. And so she really had this um, this upbringing that focused a lot on education. And her parents were also very firm believers in co-education. That is, boys and girls should have equal access to knowledge. And to that extent, they set up a free public school on their family farm. And that's where Mary Walker got the first early years of her own education. And as you explained, that was also where she uh, began her orientation towards a medical career as well. That's right. And her father apparently had an interest in medicine for quite a while. And it may have also tied into the fact that um, his wife, Mary's mother, in the typical childbirth cycles, she, you know, experienced problems and he he thought he could help her. And this was not uncommon. A lot of medicine in the early part of the 19th century was I, maybe what we would call lay medicine. People just studied what worked and tried it again and, you know, things with home remedies. But Mary grew up surrounded by medical textbooks and saw her father always trying to figure these things out. So she knew from an early age that she was interested in doing the same thing. As you explained, she goes to medical school. She meets the man who becomes her husband. And their, their marriage, as you uh, then uh, note, uh, doesn't really end very well. Right. And this was um, probably one of the stranger episodes in her life. You know, she she goes from medical school where she meets this young man that In modern terms, I guess we would refer to them as soulmates. She really believed she had found her soulmate because he he seemed so reform-minded. And when they got married after medical school, they they set up co-practices. And she just really thought she had found the perfect spouse. And then found out that he was having extramarital affairs and also um, kind of what was part of some reform circles at the time, this reference to what was known as free love, where people believed it was acceptable to choose their sexual partners simply based on desire and in the 19th century, that was quite a radical notion. And her husband offered to essentially just keep 
what might be called an open marriage. He said, well, this is what I want to do. I would be fine with it if you wanted to do it as well. And she was actually horrified at this. And she said, no, that was not her understanding of what a marriage was. So she sued him for divorce which was also very unusual, and she was able to secure a divorce from him. One of the things I liked about your explanation of this period is the traits of her character that really come out. I mean, she's a very uh, she's a very daring person. She is doing a lot of things that the vast majority of women at that time simply didn't do. She goes to medical school. She uh, gets her degree. Uh, the marriage is in some respects the most conventional thing about her as is her reaction to her husband's philandering. And, but then she undertakes this, you know, radical step to get the divorce. And so you already get a sense even before the war begins of her as a person who really just is, is, is unafraid to do what she thinks needs to be done. Yes. And I think that for a lot of people in the 1850s and then into um, the Civil War years, they would have recognized her right off the bat as an unusual person, even before she started to speak, because she wore what was known at the time as a bloomer costume. And it was extremely unusual for a woman to appear in public wearing men's trousers. And that's what she did. This, um, this movement for dress reform had started in the late 1840s and continued into the 1850s, but for the most part, it was a very brief reform movement. A lot of women, uh, especially women's rights activists like uh, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, did briefly adopt this costume, but then gave it up because it just attracted too much ridicule. But for Mary Walker, a woman's ability to decide how she wanted to present herself in public was absolutely essential to women's equality. She did not believe that men and women could ever be equal until that one fundamental issue was addressed. So having, you know, undergone this already, you know, remarkable arc, you have the start of the Civil War. And Mary Walker then, you know, undertakes this very remarkable journey to uh, activism, to, you know, doing something uh, for the war effort. What led her to involve herself with the war? And how does she try to uh, serve the war effort? I think that um, her interest in the war, uh, a couple of things. One is that um, it's tied to um, her belief in equality. She, once men went off to serve in the war, she believed that if a woman wanted to do that, she should be able to do it. Again, this, this comes down to her ideas about gender equality. And the second thing is... Um, while she was in medical school, she read the stories of uh, Florence Nightingale, and she was very much interested in women who were heading out to um, front lines to help with medical care. And so she, she took that British example as something that American women could also undertake. 
That's one of the things you do in your book, by the way, that I have to say I really enjoyed, which is that while Mary Walker's example was very unusual, as you explained, she's not unique. I mean, you have the all sorts of interesting examples of women who are involved in the war effort, in, in sometimes in ways that are, uh, you know, exploit their sex uh, in, in ways, in occasionally in ways that defy their sex. And it helps to, uh, I, and I thought it was really helpful in the sense of identifying that, you know, that Mary Walker is very unusual. She is a, a, a very capable person, but that what you're seeing is in some respects reflective of, you know, a, a, an attitude or an impulse that a lot of women had at that time. That's right. And it, that is an interesting thing about Mary Walker for as, um, you know, as well known and even notorious as she became, she certainly wasn't the only woman who had these ideas about serving somehow during the war. Um, Elizabeth Blackwell, another female physician, had this idea of recruiting women as nurses. Um, all of these things were um, were already going on at the same time. So she isn't the only one. Um, I mean, we couldn't even make a claim that she was the first one, but she was certainly one of the more interesting and public figures to take on this kind of medical work. Yet the medical work that uh, Mary Walker was trying to do was really uh, socially problematic, or I should say it, it was problematic in the eyes of the men to whom she was applying to serve. What was it that she was trying to do uh, for the war effort and uh, and how was she received by the officials uh, to whom she spoke? She believed that she should be able to um, actually join the military. And she went to Washington right after she got her uh, her divorce case settled. And she went right to the office of the Secretary of War, and she asked for um, a commission. She wanted to be commissioned in the United States military as a physician. And she, she was rejected. She, uh, she was told that... Um, because she was a woman, that um, she could never join the military. And even if, um, even if she had the medical skills that the military needed, her gender trumped everything. And, and that's part of this uh, of her story that I find so fascinating, which is the fact that she it, she's wants to serve, but she wants to serve on. On her terms, in terms of what she thinks she can do best, and as you explain, you know, throughout the course of the war, she is remarkably consistent in this. She she never really gives way, does she? No, and and until, well, I, I shouldn't even say until um, she does in eighteen sixty four. She does get, um, she does get. Um, she actually does get a civilian position and um, she's hired on the, the military does hire her on as, um, as a contract surgeon, but um, 
it's not what she wants. It's the second best thing to what she can get. And even, even when she gets that paid position, she still keeps trying to get a commission. She never gives up. And even after the war is over, she, um, for a short time, she starts angling for a retroactive commission um, that she just wants the recognition for having served. And I really got the sense as I was reading about that, that that persistence really was key. She's, she's as you described, she's literally working on it for three years. And, and, and you know, as you explained, during that time, she's not just simply sitting in a boarding house in Washington, D.C., you know, visiting with various dignitaries. She is, you know, going to the front. She, she's uh, she's serving. She's not basically saying, give me a commission or uh, you won't have my services. She's trying to serve and get a commission at the same time. That's right. And, and it's really, it's her persistence and it's because she knows what she needs to do. And even though she keeps getting turned down, um, she just decides to volunteer. And she initially started in Washington, D.C., uh, she volunteered at a place called the Indiana Hospital at the um, Patent Office building. And there was a, um, a military doctor there who was uh, short-staffed, and he didn't care about the gender issue. He was happy to um, try and use whatever influence he had to get her a commission if that's what she wanted. Um, he was unsuccessful. And by 1862, then, she's, um, she's essentially moving along with the Army. Um, she stays pretty close to the D.C. area for a time um, before she ends up uh, in Tennessee. But um, she does know that she needs to be out doing things to show her worth and to do that, she's essentially donating her services. So it does take her a long time. She spends uh, whatever money she can raise through donations. I think her family was sending her some money. So she's really living kind of hand to mouth and um, dedicated to helping the soldiers because, of course, she strongly believed in the cause of ending slavery and keeping the union together. That's an interesting point that I uh, that it does come across as well, which is that this isn't just a matter of her activism in terms of her showing her worth. It's that she's doing so on behalf of a cause in which she believes incredibly strongly. Exactly. And this was one of the things, too, that goes back to her childhood as free thinkers, um, the walkers were very much involved with abolition and they also did dabble in women's rights issues early on. So these were values that Mary Walker carried with her through her adulthood. And when the problems with the South started to um, intensify in the late 1850s, she was decidedly on the side of, of abolition. And um, she did see the Civil War as a way of ending slavery. So she, um, she was very committed to that cause. And because she had a skill that she knew was so valuable to the cause, she simply couldn't understand why anybody would prevent her 
from utilizing that skill to that end. Um, so for her, the gender equality was wrapped up with the Civil War. She she just didn't see any way of separating those two things. And it was also in that the other side of the coin, which I found interesting as well, which is how even though they need her services, that typically that gender equality issue becomes the, uh, the, 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 the sticking point that they, they, they won't, not only will they not accept her on her terms, which is to give her a commission, but they also oftentimes don't even think they, they need a woman doctor. Of course, as you explained, sometimes they don't even think they need, you know, nurses, uh, as well. But you, time and again, you point out how the, the, sh- the sheer scope of the demands, uh, force them to make accommodations that, that, that give her that in. And, and this was, um, pretty much of an ongoing problem during the Civil War, access to medical care with so many battles and, and you know, hundreds of thousands of people involved. It, it just was a huge need. And even with the assistance of civilian groups like the United States Sanitary Commission, it, it was very difficult to get all those needs met. And for the the relatively few female physicians that were around, even when you add in all of the other women who were willing to work as nurses, that's still just basically getting really simple needs met. And, you know, in terms of the kinds of medical skills that nurses had, if you, if you looked at Dorothea Dix, who was, um, who actually was brought in by the United States Army to work as the superintendent for the Army nurses, Dorothea Dix was less concerned that these women had any medical training at all and more concerned that they were obedient, that they were upstanding middle-class women who would take orders from male doctors. That's what Dix found the most important thing for a nurse. And as you could imagine, Mary Walker would not have survived in an environment like that for two minutes. Um, (laughs) She had her own ideas on how things should be done. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned how things change for her when she gets to Tennessee. Uh, Why is it that she goes to Tennessee uh, in, in the first place? And how do the circumstances change for her? Well, she's following the army, basically, and she she does, I think, understand that the more she shows that she is needed, especially close to battles, um, she goes, um, she's there not long after Chickamauga, and she's in Chattanooga hospitals, working with um, the men who had been wounded in the battle. And she does acquit herself very well. She's, she's not a battlefield doctor, but she does get to these places not long after battles have concluded. Um, there's still a lot of need for medical care. And she does prove herself as being a valuable Position. So she does, during these early years, gain the admiration of 
some male doctors, but even more importantly, members of the military who are well-placed enough that they're willing to, you know, give her opportunities that she may not normally get. And so this is, this is what finally gets her that paid position with the army as a civilian contract surgeon, that the work she had done in Chattanooga um, stayed with some of the army brass who then when there was an opening um, in Northern Georgia for a physician, um, that's when her name came up as the perfect replacement for a doctor who had died. Now, you mentioned that she wasn't a, a battlefield surgeon, yet you described that, you know, that did not mean that she had a safe existence. In fact, she, uh, as you uh, point out very uh, throughout the book, she was, you know, oftentimes taking these uh, great risks. She was uh, dealing with some very dangerous individuals. And, and then and as you then go on to detail, she ends up getting uh, captured by the Confederates. Right. When when she finally gets that position as a contract surgeon, there is evidence um, from from her files, uh, her government files that I've read. There is evidence that one of the reasons why she was chosen for that job was that she had made it very, very clear that she was willing to spy and this is um, this is when General Sherman is preparing for his his great march to the sea, and there's the sense that the United States Army needs as much information about Confederate troop strength and movements as it can possibly get. And Mary Walker was assigned to this encampment in northern Georgia that was just I mean it was occupied by the United States Army, but in the surrounding area, there were still a lot of Confederate forces there in terms of the civilian population. A lot of that was basically, um, you know, Confederate sympathizers. So she was um, willing and actually encouraged to go out among that civilian population to treat them. Uh, they needed medical attention as much as anybody in the military did. And while she was out, the expectation was she would keep her eyes open. She would engage in conversations that might um, reveal some information that she would then bring back to the camp. And it was you know, it was a dangerous area. And at least a couple of times she was stopped by Confederate soldiers. And um, on the last time, of course, in the spring of 1864, she was um, detained and the Confederate soldiers just found her highly suspicious and they arrested her. And she ended up as a prisoner of war. I was wondering if you could uh, explain what that experience was like, because it was just so fascinating to, because, you know, she's a prisoner of war as a woman and it's, it's such an unusual circumstance. I mean, was she, uh, you know, treated as, uh, as kind of uh, an unusual figure? Was she something of a celebrity? 
was she something of a hot potato for the Confederacy? What did they do with her? And I think it was all of those things combined. <laughs> um, yeah, everybody knew about her. And, you know, here is this Yankee woman wearing trousers, claiming to be a doctor. And um, the Confederate officials really weren't sure what to do with her beyond keeping her prisoner. I mean, it was clear that they believed she was a spy and they believed that it was dangerous just to let her go. So um, she was taken to Castle Thunder Prison in Richmond. And I mean, in terms of how she was treated, I mean, on the one hand, she was treated a bit more gently because of who she was. I think the Confederates knew they had a pretty high profile prisoner, so they weren't willing to do anything that would directly harm her, but certainly keeping her prisoner, especially near the end of the war in Confederate territory where, you know, supplies were really short, there, there was trouble getting food. And she, she was a prisoner for about four months And that certainly wasn't a very long time, but it was long enough for her to suffer some, uh, both some physical and psychological hardships, um, enough that she was, by the end of it, she was really trying to figure out if she could get any strings pulled to get her out of there, because she just, she wanted to be gone. She didn't want to stay there any longer than she had to. And yet when she uh, is released by the Confederates, she goes right back to participating in the war. Right. She was not willing to end her military service, although, um, of course, she wasn't directly in the military, but service as far as being a a civilian contract surgeon. She didn't want to give that up. The war was still going on. She was still able to function. And so she was involved in a um, prisoner exchange. That's how she got her freedom. And one of the first things she did was to ask for a reassignment. So she ends up um, basically heading up the, the medical hospital in a women's prison in Kentucky, which also um, causes her some difficulties with the male doctors there. She has trouble getting along with the female prisoners because they are Confederates and she's, she's not sympathetic at all to the Confederacy, even among its female population. So uh, she has a hard time with that job. And then, then of course the war ends. So how is it that she earns the Medal of Honor? What is, what, on what is the award based and how does she react to it? Well, I think the award, it is very clearly based on her contributions to the United States and its its goal in defeating the Confederacy and citing her, her medical work, um, citing her um, prisoner of war status, and really playing all of this up as, as unusual for a woman. And I, I, it's hard to 
really talk about something as prestigious as the Medal of Honor as a consolation prize because, I mean, the Medal of Honor is a really, really big deal. And um, Mary Walker was very aware of that. But it is interesting to note that she received this award instead of getting the commission that she wanted. Um, Because even at the end of the war, um, she was requesting from the Secretary of War that she be given a military commission that would be retroactive through her her years um, in the Civil War, and that she promised once this was awarded to her, the commission, that she would then resign it. But she just wanted it on record that she had been commissioned by the United States Army. And um, Edwin Stanton turned this question over to the Judge Advocate General, who considered the case, went through precedent, and concluded that since there was no precedent for a woman being commissioned in the United States military, he couldn't or wouldn't change it. So he was the one who suggested that given what she had done for the military, that perhaps a Medal of Honor was more fitting as a reward. And that's what President Johnson agreed to. And even though it was, you know, again, not to denigrate the award, but something of a consolation prize, as you explained, she wore it proudly for the rest of her very long life. Oh, she was, um, she was absolutely thrilled with it. And she did understand how important it was. And I think more, even more than that, she understood how important it was that a woman received it. I, I don't I don't think she would have felt it was any less of an honor if other women would have been given it as well, but she certainly did understand that it was an even greater honor that she was the only woman who received it. So with the end of the war, you have uh, she's in her uh, you know early to mid 30s. She has this long record of achievement. What does she do next? She she really has to figure out how she's going to earn a living. And she does expect, or she had expected, that her medical career would do that. I mean, that was one of the reasons why she wanted to be a doctor. She knew she could earn her own living throughout the rest of her life as a physician. Her time as a prisoner of war, though, did damage her eyesight to the extent that she could still practice medicine, but she could not be a surgeon. And everybody knows that surgeons make more money than general practitioners. So she was able to, um, based on that issue, she was able to secure a pension from the United States government because of her war service and this this vision disability. And that that provides her certainly not with with any kind of independent wealth, but enough to get by on. And um, again, she uses some family money, she relies on donations, but this is when she, she really embraces the women's suffrage movement and 
in the wake of the Emancipation Proclamation and the passage of the 13th Amendment, which uh, banned slavery in the United States, she thought voting rights were essential to securing citizenship. So she was one of thousands of women in the United States who started campaigning for voting rights for both um, black citizens and for female citizens. So what was her role in the suffrage movement? Was she uh, a celebrity given uh, her wartime service? Uh, Was she a leader or was she something of a pariah for some reason? Again, all of those things. And, uh, it was because of the the um, interesting mixture of personalities in the movement. She did have quite a bit of celebrity or notoriety because of her wartime service. And some women really respected her for it. Others did find her rather strange because she was still wearing those trousers everywhere she went. And... Um, Mary Walker clearly did see for herself a position as a leader in the suffrage movement. And she did clearly um, undertake activities to cement that leadership status. And so she was, she was actually vying with a lot of other women at the time for a leadership role. Um, I've mentioned Elizabeth Cady Stanton already. Most people are probably even more familiar with the name of Susan B. Anthony, um, another very well-known suffragist at the time, Lucy Stone. All of these women were very big names in the suffrage movement, and Mary Walker expected that her name should be as big or bigger. Uh, Why was she not as successful in, in, in cementing that leadership role? I think because of her unwillingness to work well with others, she was very uncompromising and um, she refused to give in to other people's ideas of how the movement should be run. She was a very early adopter of a strategy that the suffragists used called the New Departure. And the new departure was based on a reading of the 14th Amendment that recognized um, people who were born in the United States as citizens. And a lot of women said, well, as women who were born in the United States, that made them citizens. So automatically, they believed they had the right to vote. Once they reached the age of 21, they believed they had the right to vote. Mary Walker believed in that interpretation absolutely. Uh, She even wrote a pamphlet about her reading of this portion of the Constitution, and she adamantly asserted that women only had to go to the polls to vote and that it was the duty of Congress to pass I guess what we would call enabling legislation just to make sure that women were able to cast their, their ballots without being interfered with. And, and she believed that the suffrage issue would be solved. I find it very interesting. You're uh, when you're describing this because a lot of the same traits that you see 
her demonstrate during the war, her persistence, her, her stubbornness, her uh, dedication to her cause, you know, those carry over. It's, 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 a, it's consistency in her life. But sometimes it doesn't always work to her advantage that she oftentimes that, that she doesn't, as you mentioned, she doesn't necessarily play well with, with others within the movement. Right. And this this does get her into um, trouble with with some of the other leaders. She and Stanton and Anthony um, just had a a growing animosity to the point where, um, you know, she would Mary Walker would show up at these annual meetings of the uh, the National Women's Suffrage Association, or later than a National American Women's Suffrage Association, and there would be a lot of tension over whether she would try to speak, how, how, how her speeches would be received, um, if she should even be recognized. Um, and finally, I think it was sometime in the 1890s, uh, the national organization got so frustrated with her, they simply refunded her dues. And it was a clear sign that they expected her never to show up at another meeting because they were just so frustrated with her. Suffragism wasn't the only uh, cause to which she committed herself as well. As you explained, she's continuing in uh, to pursue dress reform. And I, I thought that was really fascinating how she, you know, what, what she does during this period as well. It's especially fascinating in the light of some of the things we talk about today regarding, uh, you know, transvestism, uh, you know, gender fluidity, and, and how she must have really stood out so much more back then. Because, she's, as you described, she goes from wearing the bloomers and the vests to where, by the end, she's wearing clothes that are, that are basically men's cut. Right. And this is um, this is something, again, that gains her that notoriety. And throughout her her adult life, she was arrested several times for wearing men's clothing in public. And um, she she would defend herself. Uh, Her one of her standard responses was that she does not wear men's clothing because she was a woman. Any clothing that she chose to wear became her clothing. So, (laughs) you know, it's interesting because she she was always very, very set on these kinds of explanations. So she would reject this charge that she was wearing men's clothing because she wore it. She was a woman, so it couldn't be men's clothing. And um, she did believe that this was a fundamental equality issue between the sexes and that women should be able to just wear whatever they wanted to. She wanted to wear trousers and she believed that she should be able to do that without anybody making any sort of comments or, you know, even questioning whether or not she was really a woman. And I'm sure those questions did come up in terms of public discussions, you would not have found those kinds of things happening very blatantly, say in newspaper or magazine articles, they could sometimes be hinted at, but that was a bit too much um, for public, you know, in print discussions at the time. But this is something that I, I couldn't find any 
definitive information on how she saw herself other than she described herself as a woman and she let it go at that. I, I thought your chapter on, on her final years was a, a little tragic because as you explained, she dies early in 1919. So she dies on the cusp of the passage of the 19th amendment, the granting nationwide of women, the right to vote. But even before then, it, it seems as though she you know, by, by virtue of her commitment to the issues as she saw them, that, that she seemed increasingly to be a figure who's alienated, especially from that younger generation, the, the, the Alice Pauls and, 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 and that, uh, that uh, group of women who were, you know, doing a, the new wave of activism and how she seemed to stand out because, as you explained, she was committed to the idea that women already had the vote. They just needed, they didn't need an amendment to grant it to them. Yes, and she does try in her later years to still be kind of a leader of this new movement. Um, by the turn of the 20th century, there was this emphasis on what were described as the, the new women of the 20th century. And ironically, these were the young women who did start wearing trousers in public. They They may not do it all the time, but if they were out riding a bicycle or if they were playing tennis or golf or you know something like that they they were more ready to alter their their costumes than they ever had been before and mary walker does try to kind of tap into this change that she had really started decades before and she tries to create this community um, in Oswego, where she was from, uh, for new women to have this um, place where they could live and work and be educated. But she's she's just really not all that relevant to younger women anymore. And yes, when Alice Paul holds her big suffrage parade in 1913. And then in 1917, when she puts the pickets in front of the White House for suffrage, Mary Walker does not approve of this. She, she thinks that that whole wing of the suffrage movement are a bunch of show-offs. Um, she does show her her knowledge of the Constitution by saying she doesn't understand why Alice Paul is targeting President Wilson because the president has nothing to do with getting a constitutional amendment passed. That goes through Congress and then it goes on to the states for ratification. So um, she did have a, a pretty valid criticism there, but by that point, she, nobody was really listening. Hmm. Um, other than pointing out that she was just kind of this cranky old lady. Hmm. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now? Sure. I finally got back to Dale Evans. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the, the book that I originally was contracted with for Lions, um, the, the Mary Walker book was fast-tracked because we wanted to get it out, get it out in 2020 because of the um, 19th Amendment centennial. And nobody, of course, nobody knew what was going to happen with COVID. And so at the same time that my book was going to press and all of the normal publicity stuff should have been happening, 
everything was getting shut down. So Mary Walker got a little bit silenced there um, with this new biography because of external factors. So it's it's been really great to have the opportunity to do uh, podcasts like yours to, to bring her story out again. And now that it's out, I've um, got an end of the year deadline for Dale Evans, and we're hoping to see her appear in 2021, uh, probably late in 2021, and again, hopefully when we're all out and about a little bit better than we are now. Uh, well, I hope that when uh, your biography of Dale Evans comes out, that we can have you uh, back on the podcast so you can talk about that book as well. Oh, that would be great. She is uh, she is absolutely fascinating. If you think Mary Walker is interesting, uh, Dale Evans as much, but for very different reasons. Well, Teresa Kaminsky, thank you very much for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day. It was great, Mark, and thanks so much for asking.